0: Good morning, church. How are we today? Oh, I want to thank you for giving me some time off, letting me uh, steal away some time with my family. The last couple Sundays, we had a wonderful time in beautiful Maui, and uh, it, was, it was, well, it wasn't easy, I'll be honest. Um, it's the weather there, uh, and the water, and it was, it was a little rough, but um, we did survive, uh, and... Uh, Yes, thank you. Thank you for that time away. Thank you uh, for Pastor Joe and for Brandon bringing the word to us the past uh, few weeks. So thankful for them. And I really uh, left with confidence that you were in good hands. And I pray that you were blessed by that, challenged by that, drawn closer to each other and to God through that. One of the questions that uh, I kept hearing over and over in Hawaii and continue to hear to this day. And if you are a parent or you are a grandparent, you have grandchildren, you are not unfamiliar with this question. It is, wait, what? Wait, what? I hear that over and over again, daily. But really, it's more than daily. It's like every few minutes in my home, I hear, wait, what? Hey, can you take out the trash? Wait, what? can you clean your room wait what can you take your your dish in from the table wait what yeah yeah take it in do it yeah it's a question of surprise right it's a question of disbelief it's the present day version of I didn't expect that oh I didn't see that coming really taking my plate what Wait, what? <laughs> if we were going to express it in a symbol, it would be something like this symbol that hopefully will come up on the screen here. Maybe, maybe not. Where is it? Wait, what? Exactly. There's a symbol that's called an interrobang. Maybe you've heard of it. It's not widely used, but basically it's this. Imagine a question mark with an exclamation point in the middle of it. An interrobang. It's a weird, weird thing. I don't use it very much. Usually I I write a question mark, and then I'll do an exclamation point, and then usually a question mark again, and an exclamation point, and, and so on and so forth to express, wait, what? This doesn't make sense. Pandemic? Wait what? Are you kidding me? Happened to me this past week. In Hawaii, we were filming the whole time trying to make memories, right? And we put together these really kind of silly videos. Maybe some of you have seen them. And, and the second one, this one that was kind of a Jurassic Park theme, it took a lot of effort. And I'm working on this thing and hours are going by. And I'm like, okay, I really got to just end this thing because I need to experience Hawaii and time with a family and not just edit video here. Well, I finally got it done. I showed it to the family in iMovie and then they were like this is this is really cool went to export it and a fatal critical catastrophic error occurred and I went wait what <laughs> it's what happens when you get to the end of a puzzle and you realize there's a missing piece here wait what? <laughs> I hate those times. I don't like those moments because very often they mean that I've been wasting my time, that I've been headed in the wrong direction. Maybe I've even been believing something that isn't true. And sometimes it's the, I need to start over. I need to rethink my life. Maybe I need to admit that I'm wrong. Have you been there? It's not very fun. But what if I told you that it is the very best place to be if you've been brought there by Jesus. And that, I believe, is exactly the response that Jesus intended to evoke when he spoke up in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. Just three verses, but let's stand anyway. It'll be a quick stand, all right? Wait, what? Mark chapter 12, verse 35, it says this. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus continues, David himself calls him Lord. So, how is he his son? And a great throng heard him gladly. May God bless the reading of his word. Wait, what? That, I think, is the response that the religious leaders were hoping to pull out of Jesus in Mark chapter 12. If you've been with us, you know for the past several weeks they've been coming at him again and again and again. They've been questioning his politics. They've been questioning his authority. They've been questioning whether or not he really knows his scripture. But each and every time, Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't say, wait, what? They were hoping to stump him. They were hoping to trap him. They're hoping to destroy him, right? That's really what's going on here. But as it turned out, they were the ones that were left stumped. They were the ones looking unsophisticated or uninformed or even ill-intentioned in the eyes of the watchful crowd. They didn't like Jesus. Why didn't they like him? Well, if you've been with us in our study of Mark, you know that they had things that they held on to tightly that they felt being pried from their fingertips as Jesus continued with his ministry. Jesus was a threat to their popularity. They were used to being the go-to guys when it comes to religious things, to spiritual matters. But now here Jesus comes on the scene. Just like John the Baptist, Jesus is drawing a crowd. In fact, John was kind of a nuisance, but Jesus is drawing far bigger crowds. And he's speaking with the kind of authority here. And on top of all that, he's performing these powerful and unprecedented and undeniable miraculous things. Sick people are being made well. Lame people are getting up and they're jumping around and, and walking. and blind people are given sight. And there's even a few people that we know were dead. And they're out there. They're just walking around as if nothing happened. How can we compete with that? They couldn't. They couldn't compete with that. And so Jesus was a threat to their popularity. He was a threat to their prosperity. You remember, just just a few days before our passage here, Jesus was in the temple. He's overturning tables. He's pulling chairs out from underneath. The, The pigeon sellers, the dove sellers. He's trying to expose the corruption that was going on in this temple. And he was insisting that the temple be about what God intended it to be about. It's not about the religious leaders lining their pockets. The temple is there for people to pray and worship and be led to God and to a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. Jesus was a threat to their prosperity. Finally, he was a threat to their power. How are they going to maintain control over these, this Jewish people when Jesus' teaching is constantly one-upping ours? It's constantly undermining ours. Jesus is a threat. This guy needs to be gone like yesterday. So they gave it all they had. And they pulled out all the stops. They recruited the best and brightest minds. They even linked arms with unlikely uh, people, the Herodians. We despise these guys, but maybe they can help us get rid of Jesus. It all came to nothing. In Mark chapter 12, verse 34, we see they finally came to a point where they just threw up their arms and gave up. It says in verse 34, no one dared to ask him any more questions. We don't dare ask him any more questions. We give up. We gotta go home now. We gotta re-strategize. Maybe we'll fight another day. But wait, what? There's more. Verse 35, we read that Jesus now asks a question. They may, be, they may have been finished with him. He was not finished with them. Have you ever had one of those moments? You're in one of those difficult conversations with someone, and they're trying to trip you up. They're asking you all kinds of difficult questions about what you believe. And it's so annoying. You know they aren't actually interested in a good dialogue. They're just interested in diatribe. You know they don't care about you. They care about making a fool of you. They want to show how just ridic- how ridiculous it is what you believe in. And praise God when they finally give up, they finally got tired, they see they're getting nowhere, and they move on. I can recall a few conversations in my life when all I could think of was how fast and how far I can get away from these people. But notice Jesus doesn't do that. They came at him again and again and again. And not just one person, not just two people, but groups over and over again. And Jesus doesn't walk away, doesn't run away. When these guys, in fact, when these guys are finally out of ammunition, Jesus now takes the initiative to ask them a question of his own. He keeps the conversation going. Now, why does he do that? Is it because he's angry? Is it because he wants to give them a taste of their own medicine? I don't think so. I think he does it for the same reason that you and I should refuse to just up and walk away the moment some bothersome person stops accosting us for our faith. You continue to engage because you care more about their salvation than you do your own comfort. Let me put it a different way. Christians display Christ-like love by thoughtfully engaging unbelievers with the intent of pointing them to Jesus. What does that look like? Well let's look at what Jesus did. Did Jesus go on the attack? No. Did he make accusations? No. Did he begin a smear campaign? No. Did he start spouting off all of his credentials, all the things that he had done? All right, you see that guy over there? See I, he was dead. Now he's alive. You listen to me, not you, right? Did he do any of that? No, he doesn't do any of that. He simply asks a question. And not just any question, it's a thoughtful, it's an intentional question which would direct his listeners to think carefully about what they believed, and, and more importantly, what they thought of him. You see, something was missing in their understanding. The puzzle that they had constructed in their minds was missing a few pieces, and Jesus wanted to help them realize that. So Jesus asks... How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, someone might say, That's kind of an odd question, kind of of out of left field here. Where's this all going? Why does Jesus come up with this? It's not an odd question. It's a brilliant question. You see what the religious leaders were trying to do was bring into question whether or not Jesus was a fraud. See all you people who are listening to him, you're following him, he's your idol. He's a fraud. It was clear in their minds that Jesus was making him out himself out to be the long awaited Jewish Messiah, the anointed one who was promised by God, remember from our study of Genesis, way back when to Abraham. Jesus is making himself out to be that guy. Why did they think that? One of the reasons was because Jesus allowed people to refer to himself as the son of David. Now, Jesus was a son of David. The genealogies of his father and his mother given to us in Luke and Matthew both point to that. They attest to that. Uh, we see Joseph's li- lineage in Matthew 1, 1 to 17. We see Mary's lineage in Luke chapter 3. And all of that, of course, could have been easily refuted or verified by anyone who would simply just check the genealogical records which were held kept in the temple and these were intricate and you would think if these religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus one of the very first things that they would do go back check the genealogical records is he a son of David or isn't he a son of David okay we see here that he's not then Jesus look everybody he's not really a son of David stop calling him that case closed we're done here we don't see that Jesus was a son a descendant of David, But what does being a descendant of David have to do with anything? What does it have to do with being the Messiah? When we say son of David, we're of course talking about King David, right? We're talking about the second and greatest king of all Israel. His family line, God promised, would be the one in which the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one, would come. We see that in passages like 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. That's not the only passage. Psalm 89, it says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring, singular, forever, and build your throne for all generations. We continue on in verse 35. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. And so you can see the connection between the phrase, son of David, and this long awaited Messiah. That's what people believed in that day. In fact, that's what people still believe today. They were waiting, they were watching. They were anticipating the day when the son of David would come on the scene. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll recall that Jesus was referred to as the son of David, not just once, but multiple times. Do you remember? We studied in Mark chapter 10. Blind, Bartimaeus, he calls out, he cries out to Jesus. He wants sight, and he says, what? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In Matthew 12, demon-possessed man is healed by Jesus and the buzz among the crowd is what? Could this be the son of David? Matthew 15:22, there's a Canaanite woman, a lady who's not even Jewish, recognizes Jesus as the son of David and begs him, "Jesus, please cast the demon out of my daughter." And then there was that parade you you remember the, the parade? It happened just a couple days ago in Mark. People were shouting. They're waving palm branches and taking off their coats and throwing them on the ground. Jesus is, his his donkey that he's riding is walking on these things. And there's a frenzy going on in Jerusalem, and people are shouting, What? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the phrase Son of David, it's a really big deal. It had everything to do with Israel's one great hope for the future. It had everything to do with Jesus' identity. So it makes perfect sense that if the religious leaders were trying to dismantle the people's impression of Jesus as the Messiah they'd be trying to convince the people that he was not the son of David. He might be a son of David, but not the son that we've all been waiting for. So when Jesus asked this question about being the son of David here in verse 35, clearly he's zeroing in on the very heart of the matter here. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that the Messiah would be the son of David. The problem The problem was that they failed to understand that the Messiah would be more than the Son of David. He would not be less than the Son of David, but he would be so much more, and that's the very thing that Jesus draws their attention to. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? He asks, he's pointing them to a problem here. There's a problem here. Either there's an apparent contradiction in your sacred scriptures, or you have an inadequate understanding of who the Christ, it's the the Greek translation of Messiah, who the Christ is. Which one is it? Well, first, what's the problem? Verse 36, Jesus says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, that's Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It says, in the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. And that means that the words that David is speaking here are not simply his own. They are inspired. Literally, they are breathed out by God and therefore have a measure, <laughs> a great measure, a supreme measure of authority. You can't ignore them. You got to pay attention to these things. Every word that he says here, you need to mark down, take note of, stamp it. This is it. When people these days talk about inspiration, they're talking about something completely different, right? They're talking about some burst of, of creativity or insight that maybe an artist or a musician gets, or maybe even a, a chef or something, when they, when they hear something or see something, they smell something, an artist uh, it looks at the grandeur of the mountains and goes, whoa, I need to paint. And a musician is listening to the sound, the roar of the ocean is like, oh, I'm feeling something. I think I need to bang my head up and down. I need to get writing music chef, maybe, they smell something sweet, and they just go, I need to cook. Let's saute. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about here. That's a different kind of inspiration. When the Bible speaks of inspiration, it's referring to the supernatural influence and the sovereign hand of God on what a person writes or says. So, when Jesus quotes David here from Psalm 110, can't be taken lightly. Has the authority of God Himself. Okay, so what did David write so authoritatively? The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Essentially, the paraphrase, my paraphrase is, God said to my Lord, to my master, to my Adonai, sit in the position of honor, the divine position of power. Now that seat, that place at God's right hand, it was a position of authority which symbolically indicates that the person who's sitting there is co-equal with God. To have that position would essentially, necessarily indicate that the person there, sitting there, is divine himself. And that's what David is affirming here about this descendant of his. He is the Messiah, but he's so much more than just a man. He's actually divinity himself who would rule with the same authority as God himself. Okay, so David recognizes that the Messiah is going to come from his line. The Messiah is going to be divine. What's the problem here? problem Jesus brings up. Is that David, the high king of Israel, refers to his son or descendant that's going to come as his Lord. Now how can he do that? Why would David do that? Why would an ancestor refer to his descendant as his Lord, as his master, as his God? Do you see the contradiction? you religious leaders who put so much stock into what the scriptures say. You put so much stock into things that your beloved forefathers have said. How do you reconcile that the fact that the great King David referred to his future son, his descendant, as Lord, as Master, as God? See, they believed that the Messiah would be David's son. No problems there. Absolutely. But that's all they believed him to be. He would be a human leader, a, a, a new great king that would restore Israel to its former glory. Even beyond that. it would be more glorious than it ever had been before. Usher in an unending reign of blessing. He would be great, but nothing more than a man. And if that all the Messiah was going to be, then there was no way that David should have referred to him. As his Lord. Wait, what? You can imagine the look on all their faces. The dumbfounded, we just have been put in our place and haven't got a clue as to where to go here kind of look. Of course, the conclusion Jesus was leading them to was that the Messiah must be something more than just the Son of David, he must also be the Son of God. He must actually be God himself. Wait, what? Okay. Piece this together here. If the son of David is also the son of God, and all signs are pointing to the fact that Jesus is the son of David, then basic algebra tells us, wait, what? It computes, but it can't compute. It doesn't work. That's a moment when the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes could have come to the awesome understanding that the long-awaited Messiah was far more, far better, far more glorious and beautiful and awesome and powerful than anything that they had ever imagined before. But if the Messiah was nothing more than a man, well, he could have made life better. That'd be nice. He could have brought peace. He could have brought prosperity. He could have brought power. Have you gone on to JewsForJudaism.com? I was there this morning. This is what they're looking forward to. Just think, no more Roman goons standing outside our windows. That would be really nice. No more paying taxes to these wicked Roman oppressors. That'd be great. No more... Having them breathe down our necks, watching over our shoulders, never knowing if they're there. No more waiting, no more wondering, no more worrying about how we're going to get by. Who's in charge here? He'll be, he'll be the guy that'll make Israel great again. Our flag It's going to wave high above all the others. No one will ever dare challenge us forever. Our scriptures say it, forever. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. There are a lot of people these days looking for that kind of a leader in our Oval Office. But if that's all that we're hoping for, if that's what we're looking forward to is the answer to all of our problems, then we fail to realize our greatest problem. How many people do you know who have achieved so many things that they thought was going to make their life awesome, right? You've achieved them in your own life. You've had goals and markers in your own life. Okay, well, I got to graduate from high school. Well, before that, I got to pass this test that I didn't study for. Okay, if I can only pass that test, I'll be so thankful, you pass it. You graduate. You move on. Maybe you go to college. Maybe you get that degree. Maybe you get the job. Maybe you get married. You get, All these pieces are coming up. Oh, if we could only have kids. It's so hard to have kids. So I didn't know it was going to be hard to have kids. And you're praying. And you're investing money. And you're going through all these processes. We have kids. Oh, this is great. Well, if these kids could only just start listening to me. Oh, that would be incredible. Oh, my goodness. If we were on this Hawaii vacation, if the kids just wouldn't be afraid of going in the ocean. Oh, that would be amazing. Why can't these kids grow up when are they going to leave the house when is it just going to be me and my wife and then we get to go to Hawaii and it's going to be just wonderful and we're going to love it it's going to be perfect what if when is it going to happen I can't wait you've experienced some of that in your life and what happened you got it and then you went okay what's next it's not perfect now there's there's something else something more I want something more And we know those tragic stories of people who have achieved just about everything that could be wanted in life, and they find themselves destitute and empty and having no reason to go on. If that's our only hope, what kind of hope is that? World peace? Oh, that'd be so great. What then? see, Jesus' question was more than just a good question. It was more than just a great question. Jesus' question was an eternal question. That's because it would lead everyone within earshot to consider the all-important reality of who Jesus really was. He was more than just David's son, a mere man who could bring about some practical changes to the world he was god's son with the authority to not only heal the sick but infinitely more important to do dissect our souls and heal them from the inside out to forgive us our sin and make us right heal the broken relationship that we have with our maker what do you do with Jesus? Who do you believe him to be? And how do you respond to his call? What you do with Jesus has everything to do with where you will spend eternity. Speaking of those who had moved beyond the what, wait, to actually the place where they trust in Jesus given their lives to Jesus. Jesus said this in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's head. And then he says, I and the Father are one. Wait, what? (laughs) My friends, there are two very big takeaways for us to think about as we consider this passage before us this morning. Two very big takeaways. And the first is for those who have not yet come to acknowledge who Jesus is and trust him as their Lord and Savior for the salvation of their souls. If that's you, my question to you is this. If and when God brings you to that wait what moment where you're rethinking everything, When you thought what you knew about Jesus, and when you thought what you knew about yourself, and you thought what you knew about what is and what is not important in life, when that meets with what truly is, the way things really are, how will you respond? We read in in Mark chapter 12, 37, the very last verse of our passage, that after hearing Jesus ask this question, it says, the great throng, that is the people in the crowd, hundreds, maybe thousands, we don't know how many people, a lot of people, a throng, that's a lot of people. The great throng heard him gladly. Ah, oh, that's nice. They love listening to Jesus. They love listening to these thought provoking questions and this guy who has all this wisdom and knowledge. And what's he going to do next? This is so intriguing. Beats anything on Netflix. But Jesus knew. And you and I know, if we've read the rest of the story, that most of them wouldn't take it to heart. In fact, most of them. Hours later, the amusement that, that Jesus held from that just fade away. And they'd transition from being, oh, this is great. You watching this? This is awesome. And they'd move from that to bloodthirsty cries to crucify him. We also know that the hearts of the religious leaders, they wouldn't soften They would continue with their quest to destroy Jesus. In both cases, people would be missing out on the greatest, most important chance of their lives. When you find yourself in that wait what moment, how will you respond? I pray that your response will sound something like this. Jesus, son of David and son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you for taking my place, for dying the death that I should have died. Thank you for making a way for me to be washed clean, be forgiven have this guilt that I've been carrying for so many years just taken off of my back, be made right with my maker who I've turned against, basically spit in his face. Thank you for saving a, p- a place for me with you in eternity. I pray that would be your response. For those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, We've been called to testify to his great name. Are we praying that God might use us to ask good questions, to point others to how they might find Jesus to be their one and only hope? Or are we so in love with our own comfort and convenience? our precious schedules and agendas, that when difficult questions come our way, difficult conversations come our way, all we can think about is how quickly we can get out of this, move on, do something that we would rather do. If it's true that people will know Christians by their love, then let's love others by taking the time, being willing to be vulnerable, even uncomfortable, and asking them questions of eternal importance. In a world in which chaos and confusion and anger and hatred and lies persist, let's be a people who love others by pointing them to Jesus. Amen? Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't let us just go on our merry way. That for so many of us in this room, and even some of us who are listening online, we had that moment where our lives were disrupted and we had to stop We said, wait, what's going on here? And Jesus, you opened our eyes to yourself, the beauty of who you are, how much we need you, and the marvelous thing that you have done for us and the incredible future that we can have. Lord, thank you for the peace that you have brought to our own hearts, the joy, Lord, the hope. We don't march through this life looking for just the next thing that's gonna bring some next level of satisfaction. Lord, we know that full satisfaction is found in Jesus in knowing you. We long to know you more. We look forward to that day when we'll see you face to face, and that sight is never gonna go away. Lord, there's so many people, so many people that we see in our world today. They're all over the place. They're on the news. Crazy stuff is happening. People are hopeless. People are all about fighting for themselves, about pushing others down, about oppressing one another in the name of getting rid of oppression. Lord, this stuff is going on that should not be going on. They need you. Would you bring them to that moment? Would you draw them to yourself? Lord, may we be a people that don't shy away from hard conversations. I know I'm guilty of that. But may we be a people who love like Jesus loved us. We go out of our way, out of our comfort zone. And Lord, we don't bang people over the head the head. We don't tout our resume, our credentials, how much we've, what degrees we have. We love them enough to ask questions, then to give answers, to point them to yourself. Lord, would you count us worthy? Would you use us even this afternoon and this week to point others to you? And we will consider that the greatest honor. We love you. Thank you for your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.